Once you've found 1 John 1, please stand if you're able to for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to look at the first four verses in great detail this evening. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. First John 1 talks about fellowship. Fellowship is the key word uh, in chapter number 1. Uh, th- this week we're going to look at the topic of, or the title of the Bible study, or the message rather, is this the creator of fellowship. Next week we'll look at the conditions of fellowship. But let's focus in on the first four verses this morning, or this evening rather, and notice the creator of fellowship. Let's pray. Would you help us this evening, God, to be able to wrap our mind around a word that is so loosely thrown around in our churches, and uh, Lord, as we have gatherings, and uh, Lord, different times where we socialize, we'll throw the word fellowship in there. And Lord, while it applies at times, help us to have a better understanding of the word. Help us to understand where it came from. And Lord, help us to leave here challenged to have true fellowship, not only with each other, but more importantly with you. And Lord, may there be a rich relationship that each of us have with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Let me begin this evening by kind of offering some background on the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Um, uh, from what we understand from Bible historians and those who've really done their homework on the Apostle John, uh, the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the same as the author of the Gospel of John, we believe. And uh, there are many reasons why we believe that. Uh, the book carries a similar style in its writing to the Gospel of John. I'll show you that here in a few minutes. I think you'll see that and understand um, uh, John wrote these books to a group of house churches that he was uh, overseeing or having influence on. And these house churches most likely were around the city of Ephesus. Like many of the early churches, these churches were dealing with bad doctrine or apostasy within the church. They were also dealing with uh, folks who were very filled with pride and uh, wanted the preeminence. Uh, Diotrephes is rebuked in Third John for refusing and turning away missionaries and uh, traveling folks who are coming through and just not being very hospitable. And so uh, John would write 2nd and 3rd John, or the, his 2nd and 3rd epistles, uh, to, to deal directly with these issues head on. The issues of apostasy and the issues of, of, uh, of just not being very kind or being a jerk. In the epistle of 1st John, he discusses these things more from a philosophical uh, angle. So 2nd and 3rd John, he addresses them head on. 1st John, he's writing to these same churches who are dealing with these issues, and but they're more written from an angle of uh, a philosophical angle, uh, breaking it down and helping us understand. In fact, much of the writing of 1st John is nothing new. In fact, we find from uh, the, 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 let's see, uh, the Mount of Olives, the, the the Olivet Discord is called, called where Jesus would be in the upper room and head toward the Mount of Olives there. Much of that, what he shared with his disciples, much of that is found in 1 John. Much of 1 John is just rehashing what we find from John, say, 14 through John chapter number uh, 17. Um, uh, he, begins, he, he begins the book of 1 John by addressing the broken fellowship within their churches, within these churches. There was uh, fractions and schisms and divisions and fighting and, and folks just not being very nice to each other. And listen, there are times where you need to divide and separate. When it comes to doctrine, boy, you better divide and separate real quick. Listen, I won't have uh, church fellowship with someone who doesn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ and the blood atonement. I'm not going to fellowship with someone who preaches from a version of the Bible other than the King James Version. I'm not going to have uh, uh, close ties or relationship to someone who uh, preaches a works-based salvation. These are things that are very important to uh, 
about doctrine, and we are told to hold the doctrinal standard high. Furthermore, I'm not going to, I really don't want to have close affiliations uh, or, or associations, rather, with uh, someone who is a Pharisee, someone who uh, looks good on the outside, but inwardly is, as, as Matthew 23 describes them, full of dead men bones. I, I, I don't really want someone who's a total hypocrite or Pharisee, and uh, uh, people like that, we're to rebuke, we're to keep at arm's length, we're to keep at a distance. Why? Because they divide, they do not unite. Here in the book of 1 John, he opens the book by addressing many of the schisms and broken fellowship within these churches. Uh, in the fall uh, of the year, Linda, a young woman, was traveling uh, alone up uh, the rutted and rugged highway from Alberta uh, to the Yukon. This is in Canada. Linda didn't know, uh, uh, didn't know you don't travel to Whitehorse alone in a rundown Honda Civic. So she set off uh, where only four-wheeled uh, vehicle, four-wheel drive vehicles normally venture. The first evening, she found a room in a quaint hotel uh, in the mountains near a summit and asked the clerk to give her a 5 a.m. wake-up call so she could get up uh, and, and get an early start. She couldn't understand why the clerk looked surprised at the request, looked out the window and saw her car, looked at her, heard the call, thought it was odd and kind of shot her look. But when she woke up the next morning and saw the mountain shrouded with uh, early morning fog, uh, she got it. Why, why it was the clerk gave her such a strange look. So she didn't want to look foolish. So instead of just rushing out to her car and, and heading down the road in this, on these treacherous roads and on this mountain, uh, instead she went into the, the little uh, complimentary breakfast area and she's getting some breakfast and it's a small hotel. It's a rural area. And so the only other folks there eating breakfast that time in the morning were two truckers, two rough looking, uh, grizzly type truckers who knew the roads well. And so she got her food. She nervous around them and they invite Linda to sit and eat with them. And so she felt pressured. Uh, she felt a little obligated. So very nervously she took her, her bagel with cream cheese and, and her banana and, and her yogurt and her little cup of orange juice. And she went and she sat down there uh, with these truckers and, and, and just feeling out of place. And so uh, the truckers look out the window and they, uh, they say to her, where are you going? Where are you headed? And she looked at the truckers and she said, I'm going Going to Whitehorse. And in that little civic, they asked, there's no way. They told her the pass is dangerous in weather like this. And she said, well, I'm determined to give it a shot. I'm determined to try. Uh, Linda was gutsy. Linda was a do first and figure it out later type girl. Um, and so uh, that was her reply, not a very informed response. Uh, the truckers shot back, then I guess we're going to have to hug you. Linda was already uncomfortable when the, these two truckers, grizzly, unshaven, probably not smelling real good, overweight guys said they're going to have to hug her. Uh, she shot back and said, there's no way I'm letting you touch me. Not like that. <laughs> the truckers chuckled. We'll put one truck in front of you and one in the rear. In that way, we'll get you through the mountains. All that foggy mountain, um, uh, Linda followed the, the two red dots in front of her and had the reassurance of a big escort behind as they made their way safely through the mountains. Caught in the fog in our dangerous passage through life, we need to be hugged. Hugged. With fellow Christians who know the way. With fellow Christians who can lead safely ahead of us and with others behind, gently encouraging us along, we too can pass safely. Boy, I've seen it over and over and over again throughout my years in church. Folks who say, I don't need church. I have a relationship with the Lord and I don't like some of the things at the church. I don't like the personality of the pastor. I don't care for this or that or the other. Or I don't like the way this person looks at me or that person talks to me. Or I have a problem with that person that sits over there. And so I'm just not going to church anymore. I have the Bible. I have some sermon CDs I, I, I'm subscribed to and get and listen to. And I'm all set with 
with church. And what they forget is that they're going around a dangerous mountain called life. And if they're not careful without the escort in front of them and behind them of Christian brothers and sisters in the Lord, they're going to find themselves either in the ditch or falling headlong off the cliff. We need each other, folks. We need fellowship. Some folks come to church because they love to hear uh, the Bible taught and preached. And they come in, they get get there late, as late into the song service as possible because they don't like to sing. And uh, they hear the Bible preached and during the invitation they slip out. Can I tell you, that's great. You're getting the Bible preached and, and taught to you and that's all wonderful. But you're missing out on a huge element of coming to church. And that's the relationships that we develop with each other. The word fellowship comes from the root word koinonia. Koinonia, and the word, the word means participation. Participation and connection with those who share a commonality. Let me read that again. Participation and connection with those who share a commonality. Um, uh, so where did fellowship come from? Where did it come from? Uh, just like all other good things, it came from God. God created it. God created fellowship. And so this evening, uh, without stealing any more thunder from my points, we're going to look at four observations from the first four verses of 1 John as we consider this topic, the creator of fellowship. If you're taking notes this evening, notice number one, our maker, our maker. Look at back at 1 John chapter 1. And verse number one, it says there that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life, that which was from the beginning. Does that sound familiar? Boy, one of the dead giveaways that it was the Apostle John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is the way 1st John begins. It begins almost word for word, definitely uh, uh, symmetrically very similar to the way the Gospel of John begins. Let me read for you John chapter 1, 1, 2, and 3. And you have 1st John 1 there. Notice the similarities. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now, first uh, John one, one and John one, one through three. Do you know what those passages parallel? They parallel Genesis one, one, two and three. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form of void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. By the way, did you know that you can find the Trinity in the first three books of the Bible? You have God, the father in verse one. You have God, the spirit in verse two. And you have God, the son listed in verse number three, uh, where the Bible talks about light. Letter A, notice, speaking of our maker, notice his age. His age. Go back to 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 1. It says, that which was from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. Now, some have read this and made the implication that Jesus is not eternal or ageless because it says that he was from the beginning. The idea would be that he began when planet Earth began. And I have to tell you, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, if you want to, in parentheses next to his age, scribble in the word ageless. He is ageless. He has no age. My mind can comprehend something not having an end, but my mind cannot be, comprehend something not having a beginning. I, I just can't even begin to wrap my mind around how something could not have a start date. Everything that I know, everything that I see, everything that I experience, everyone that I know has a start date. But Jesus is eternal. He's existed from eternity past. You say, well, where are you seeing that in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1? Well, again, uh, we're going verse by verse, and so let's break down these verses very carefully. Notice there, it says, uh, that, uh, notice it says, that which was from the beginning. Notice that word from there. That word from, uh, found in verse 1, is the root word Emmy, E-M-I, Emmy. Now, Emmy um, oh, rather, Emmy. Seven times in John's gospel, Jesus called himself the I am. 
The I am. Do you know what the Greek uh, version of I am or the words that spilled out of the mouth of Jesus when he declared that he was the I am? It was ego emi. Ego emi. I am. I am that I am. Ego emi. Seven times in the book of John, and, and, and in a very infuriating manner, he would look at his naysayers and he would say, Ego emi. I am that I am. Boy, where does that come from? That comes from Abraham, does it not? That, or rather Moses, does it not? Where uh, uh, Moses said to the burning bush, God of the burning bush, tell, tell me who I am to tell them that sent me. And the burning bush, the voice that came out of the burning bush, God said, tell them I am that I am. You know what that means? That means that God always has been. And that means that God always will be. That which was at me, the beginning. That which was from the beginning. A reader who knew Greek, who is reading this right here, would recognize that word and would know the reference back to the book of Exodus, back to Moses, would know that John was telling his audience that Jesus Christ is God. And he always has been. He always has been. That which was from the beginning. Who created fellowship? Who is the maker of our fellowship? Well, it is a God who's always existed. Letter B, notice his authority. His authority. Go back to John, 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. Notice the description here of the word of life. Of the word of life. Jesus is the word. He is the word. John chapter 1 verse 1. One says this in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. By the way, back in first John chapter one and verse one, notice that the, the word word begins with a capital W. It is a proper noun. A proper noun describes a person place. Uh, or, I don't think it's a thing, a person or a place. Uh, and, and it is, it is capitalized, meaning that it is a person. In the beginning was the Word. Uh, uh, and in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, uh, it says, uh, it says again, that, that which was from the beginning, at the end of the verse, of the capital W, Word of Life. Jesus is the living Word. The Bible is the written Word. We hold in our hands the written version of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, this isn't Jesus, but this describes to us in perfect form who Jesus is. And the Bible wants it to be very clear that there is so little distinction between the written word and the living word that they share the same title. Boy, he is powerful. He is the word. What power is there? What authority is there in the word? Well, Second uh, uh, Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 says this, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all longsuffering and doctrine. The word is to be the centerpiece of sermons. The centerpiece of sermons. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor? I mean, this book is to be the centerpiece of sermons, but I also mean that the living word, Jesus Christ, is to be the centerpiece of sermons. He is to be the one that we hold high. Back in 2017, our theme was lift him up. And we looked at the verse in John 3 where Jesus told Nicodemus, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself or unto me. And what was Jesus saying there? He was saying, when preachers preach, don't preach your opinion. Don't preach uh, to entertain. Preach the word. Now, by all means, preach, but preach the Bible. Preach Jesus. Preach the written word. Preach the living word. Not only is the word to be the centerpiece of sermons, the word, capital W word, is to be a light to guide us. Psalm 119, 105 says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You know what uh, the Bible does for us? It shows us where we are and where we need to be. Now, here's the truth about light. Light doesn't care about your feelings. Light just exposes the truth. If, if I were to go into my bathroom tomorrow morning and I were to, uh, let's say I woke up before the sun came up and I were to stand there in front of the mirror in the dark, you know what that mirror is not going to do? It's not going to tell me what I look like. But when I reach behind me and I turn on the light and I look at myself in the mirror, 
I see a guy that needs to lose about 35 pounds. I'll see a guy with bedhead, and I'll see a guy with uh, 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 whiskers coming, or rather gray coming into my goatee and into my hair. I was watching TV, uh, football, and 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 pray for uh, Pastor Morales and Matthew and I. The Ravens lost, and we're in mourning. And uh, don't pick on us. Show us that you love us, not that you hate us. And and uh, pray for us when you go to bed tonight. Amen. But uh, we were watching football. I think this was last night, and a Just for Men commercial came on. You know, just for men, the the product. And we got down to the end end of the commercial. And um, I won't say which one of my children it was, but his initials are Matthew Lejeune. He he said, he said, Dad, do you use that? I said, boy, I'm going to get off this chair and hit you. That has nothing to do with the message. Um, When I turn on the, the light, the light is honest with what I look like. And you know what? The light exposes me for who I am. All the gray hairs I have, all of it, it exposes me for who I am. When I get into the Bible and I read it, you know what it is? It's a light in my life that shows me where I fall short. But it's a light that shines right down at my feet and shows me where I am. But it's also a light to my path. It shows me where I need to go. And I'm so thankful for the Word. It's not just the written Word that tells me that. I get down on my knees and I pray. And, and the, 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 the living Word confirms what I read in the written Word. Who is Jesus? Well, He is the Word. He is the Word. Notice that He not only is, the, the Word is not only to be the centerpiece of sermons. The Word is not only to be the light that guides us. The Word is the medicine for our brokenness. Listen to Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the Word of God is quick is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You show me where a person is broken, whether it is spiritually, whether it is mentally, whether it is uh, 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 emotionally, and I will show you a word that is able to heal the brokenness. This word is a medicine for the broken. It is a medicine for the broken. The Bible is the written version of Christ. He is ageless. He has authority. Why? Because he is the word of life. Look back at 1 John 1 and look at the very end of the verse. It says, of the word of life. The word of life. This word, capital W word, Jesus Christ, he is life. He is life. There are some verses in the Bible that just leave me scratching, not scratching my head uh, wondering, but, but just leave me in amazement. Where you, you read a verse and you say, whoa, that, I can't wrap my mind around how profound that is. I think of when Jesus is standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to, Je- uh, Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? And, and when I read that, I think, and Jesus didn't really say much back, but I, I think that if I was Jesus, I would have looked at him and said, not what is truth, who is truth. Uh, Jesus epitomizes. He is in every way truth. He said as much in John fourteen six when he said, I am the way, the truth The life. Uh, I look at John chapter 11 and verse number 25 where Jesus is there uh, with Martha who is heartbroken over the death of Lazarus. And the Bible says in John 11, 25, Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Jesus was saying this, I don't just give life, I am life. I am life, and I'm not just some good word. I'm not just the word. I am the word of life. And Jesus offers that life to us. Now, in all of this, Jesus is not only the maker of heaven and earth. He is not only the maker of mankind. Don't miss this. He is also the maker of our fellowship. He is the maker of our fellowship. How big of a deal is social interaction on a spiritual plane to God? It is the whole reason why he made humanity to begin with. Do you understand this? God made Adam and Eve so that he could have fellowship with them. That was why he made them. 
He put them in the Garden of Eden, and Eden, and the Bible doesn't tell us this, but it is my opinion that the highlight of God's day was when He would come down in the cool of the evening and He would walk with Adam and Eve. It had to be that God looked forward to that with great anticipation, and I can see the Trinity in heaven conversing about let us make man in our own image, and they go down and, and, and He breathes into Adam the breath of life. He takes Eve out of Adam's side, and, and there they are walking together, and, and Jesus comes comes down and he enjoys his time with them and then he goes back up to heaven and he watches as they fellowship with each other and he's blessed to see the fellowship between them and then the fellowship they enjoy with him. I don't know that Jesus was um, uh, lonely. Rather, I don't know if God was lonely and that's why he made mankind. The Bible doesn't tell us that. I don't know that, but I know this. God made Adam and Eve for one reason and that was for fellowship. He wanted fellowship. And I believe that every day when God finished that walk with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he went back to heaven with a sense of deep love for his creation. And I believe Adam and Eve went back into that garden, back into their space, wherever they called home in that garden. And I believe they left with a deep love because they had communed with, they had fellowship with God. I, I, listen, you need to understand the seriousness of this this evening. Fellowship with God is a big deal. He is the maker of our fellowship. Notice number two. We looked at number one, our maker. Number two, his manifestation. His manifestation. Look back at First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested unto us john chapter 1 verse 14 puts it this way and the capital w word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory whose glory the glory of jesus the glory as of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. Take your Bibles with me, if you will, over to Luke chapter 10. Hold your place in 1 John 1. Turn over to Luke chapter number 10. I was doing my devotions yesterday and came across these verses, and I felt that they just fit perfectly into the message uh, here this evening. And uh, Jesus is out, and he's interacting with folks, and uh, there are people who don't believe in him, and, and, and they're just not feeling it. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're, not, they're not getting it. And uh, Jesus turns to his disciples privately. Look at Luke chapter 10 verse 23 the bible says and he turned him unto his disciples and said and he turned him he turned himself uh, rather unto his disciples and said privately blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see for i tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them Boy, uh, uh, there were people from ages past who so desired to see God manifested, God incarnate, God walking the earth. And these disciples got to walk with Him. They got to eat their meals with Him. They got to sleep in the fields with Him. They were eyewitnesses. In fact, go back to 1 John chapter number 1 and uh, look at uh, the, the usage of the pronouns here. We and you. Now, the we describes the apostles or the eyewitnesses that Saul and the you or ye describes those who are the next generation. That would be us who did not get to see Jesus. Now, as we read these verses, keep that in mind. That which is from the beginning, which we, the apostles, have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we, the apostles, have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you, the generations to follow, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us the apostles and they got to see they got to experience notice letter a a personal touch a personal touch those of us that have been in church a long time we have heard it said over and over and over again that god left heaven and came to earth and became one of us and walked amongst us and you hear it so much you can almost yawn at it you can almost uh, grow to where you just shrug your shoulders at it. I, I just can't help but think about how big of a deal that is. That God would become one of us. That he would leave heaven and become a man so that he could save us. 
You know, Jesus very well could have come down here on a, on a horse or been born to rich parents and lived an elitist type life and found a way to get himself to the cross at the end of his life and die for our sins and have little to no contact with people throughout his time. Oh, uh, he's God. He could have found a way to do that, but that's not what he chose to do. Jesus came, chose to come to earth and live the poorest possible life. Jesus chose to interact with people who were who were the the scuttle of society, the 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 rejects of society. Turn over to Matthew chapter number seven with me. Matthew chapter number seven. Well, we see that Jesus begins his public ministry. Uh, he he goes into the um, uh, the synagogue there in uh, Nazareth. He opens up Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads the prophecy about binding up the wounded hearted. Once he's done that, he goes out a distance and he finds himself a place on a mountain. He calls those disciples to him. And we get in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, this is my opinion. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it is it is so dense with good truths. I believe that a preacher could spend a lifetime preaching just Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and not exhaust all the verses that were there. He gave out so much truth in one sermon, their heads were spinning. They couldn't believe their ears. Look at the end of Matthew chapter 7 and look at verse number 28. It says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, there's that word, and not as the scribes. So Jesus is just wowing, wooing, and wowing the crowds. They, they can't believe their ears. I, you go back to Luke 2 where Jesus is 12 years old and he's uh, giving and uh, answering, taking and answering questions, uh, asking and answering questions in the, in the synagogue or rather the temple there. And they're just blown away that this 12-year-old uh, knows so much. Well, he was the word again, so shouldn't be a surprise, but they didn't know that. And, and then you go here and you see how well the people, listen, he is hitting, he's beginning to hit his stride in popularity. Does Jesus now that he's popular, does he leave the peasant lifestyle behind and live the life of a peasant? No. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Look at verse number 1. We see here that he comes down from wowing the crowds. And what does he do? He puts his hand. He physically touches a leprous man. Look at Matthew 8, 1. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes follow him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him. Now you have to believe that when that leper showed up, everyone else took off. They didn't want this man's leprosy. And so the crowds now are distancing themselves away. It's just now Jesus and the leper. Look at uh, verse number 2 again. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. The personal touch touched him saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was clean. How about the deaf mute man in Mark chapter seven, verse 32 to 35 says this, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears. Jesus placed his fingers in this man's ears, and he spit and touched his tongue. He reached out and touched the tongue of this man who had an impediment in his speech. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And straightway his ears were open, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. What was John saying in his epistle? He was saying, we have seen him with our own two eyes. We have heard him with our ears. We have handled him with our hands. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is real. He was God walking amongst us. And he touched the lives of the most broken of society. 
He put his fingers in the ears of a deaf man. He touched the tongue of that very man. He, he touched the leper. He reached out and physically touched the leper. Oh, what a savior that he would leave heaven's throne and walk with the lowliest of mankind. Not only a personal touch, but notice let her be a powerful touch. A powerful touch. Here in 1 John 1, we're told that uh, they had seen them with their eyes. They had heard him with their ears. Their hands had handled the word of life. Jesus not only touched the deaf and blind, Jesus had touched his disciples and changed them fundamentally at their core. At their core. You have to understand as you study the Gospels, You have to understand the motive of the disciples. The motive of the disciples was not to follow Jesus to the death. They thought that Jesus was that up-and-coming king that had been predicted in the minor prophets. And they thought they were going to get to sit on thrones around Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was carried away and crucified, they were shocked. They, they couldn't believe it. Now, when you have that perspective, it makes a little more sense that James and John were arguing who would be the greatest in the kingdom. They weren't talking about that kingdom. They were thinking about an earthly kingdom that Jesus would set up. They were going to overthrow the Roman government, and Jesus was going to be their physical uh, uh, revolutionary leader. And, and, and Jesus said, oh, no, that's not the case. And it took him all three and a half years and then his resurrection from the dead to show them and touch them and change them to go forth and preach the gospel message of an eternal kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. He touched them at their core. Can I ask you a question this evening? Has Jesus touched you? How, how much has the touch of Jesus radically changed you? When we compare your life to your coworker's life who doesn't go to church, how different are you? When we compare your life to someone else that fits your demographic in 2020 in the United States of America, how much has God radically changed you at the core? Oh, no, you didn't physically walk with him. But there was a day I sat on a pew in a church and I bowed my head and I put my faith and trust in Jesus and he changed my life. A powerful touch. How wonderful is it? How wonderful is it that the God who made the heavens and earth, a God who knows how many grains of sand are on the shore, A God who knows how many stars are in the sky and how many hairs are on the head of every human being walking the earth. That that God is not only powerful enough to do all that, but personal enough to care about every detail of your life. And personal enough to save your soul. His manifestation. Notice number three, our message. Our message. Look with me at John chapter 1. Look at 1 John chapter 1 and look at verse number 3. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you. Hey, uh, look, because they had seen and because they had heard, the reflex was to declare. Are you with me this evening? Because they had seen and because they had heard, they naturally declared. For three years, they walked with Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. Turn over to Acts chapter 4 with, for me. They handled him. And once he had ascended to his father, they could not help but talk about him. They could not help but mimic his lifestyle. They could not help but try and become what they had seen and heard. Uh, in Acts 4, there's a story about um, uh, Peter and John walking up to Solomon's temple where they're going to preach. And there's a man who's a beggar and he's crippled. And they stop and the man asks them for money. And Peter, John, I believe all of you here probably know the story, but uh, just humor me for a moment. Peter and John are, are, are asked for money and they say to them this, silver and gold have we none, but such as we have, we're going to give to you. And they give him the gospel. The man is saved and they heal his legs. And he's made whole. And he's running around the temple. And everyone's like, what just happened? Wow! And Peter and John stand up and they preach. And what do they preach? They give the glory to God for healing this man. 
And people are saved because of it. And boy, the Pharisees are beginning to lose their grip of power. And so they called Peter and John in uh, uh, for what they had done. Look at verse 18. And they, they the Pharisees, the, the, the scribes, the Sadducees, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. So here they are in some sort of courtroom type setup, and they're being told by the religious council, you better stop talking about the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for what was done. For the man was above 40 years old on whom the miracle of healing was showed. They said, look, you can threaten us all you want. We can't help ourselves. We just can't help it. We have to declare we have seen and heard the power of God. It has radically touched us in a powerful way. And it is impossible for us to contain the good news that sits within us. I look at Christians who can't tell others about Jesus. And I have to ask myself this question. How much has God really changed them? Listen, it is, please hear me, and I don't mean to pick on anybody this evening. It ought to be reflex-like to tell people about Jesus. Did he save your soul from hell? Has he changed you? Then why don't you want to tell other people? What's there to be scared about? What's there to be nervous about? Hey, Peter and John said, this man is revolutionary and he has revolutionized our life and we can't help but proclaim. We can't help but declare. What is our message? Our message is that Jesus saves. And he said, listen, if you're going to talk to me, we're going to talk about Jesus. I get around some people that call themselves Christians or churchgoers, and I, I, I start talking to them, and we strike up. This happened a lot more before I was a pastor, especially now that I'm a pastor, people work out a little more. But before I was a pastor, I would strike up a conversation with someone. I would try to change it into a spiritual conversation, and they would try to change it into a political conversation or a conversation about sports. And there's nothing wrong about talking about those things per se, but it seemed like they never wanted to talk about God in the Bible. But they always wanted to talk about things that had nothing to do with Scripture. And and I'm left asking myself, if Jesus has really changed you, then why wouldn't you want to just tell everyone about Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to declare? Peter and John said, look, we have seen and heard too much. It has changed us to our core. And our message is to declare. Now, I want you to understand the background of 1 John 1, 3. Uh, John had watched Jesus die, raised from the dead. He's calling him the word of life because he's seen him living after he... John was there at the cross when Jesus was killed. He saw the resurrected Christ. He saw him ascend into the heaven. And he's writing this and saying, listen, I'm not just telling you this as hearsay. I was there. I was there. I have seen and heard. I have been persecuted for declaring. But you know what? If if you take a hammer and you hit me in the knee, I'm going to kick. And if you put me around people that know about Jesus, I'm just going to share. Because it is it is a reflex. Our message, our message. You know what that message is? It's a message of fellowship. I cannot fellowship with the lost. Because I don't have that commonality in Christ. So you know what I, you know where I'm gonna start with someone? I'm gonna start with the gospel. This uh, past Tuesday when I sat in that home and I uh, witnessed to that family, and they shared with me some struggles that are going on in their life. And I couldn't help but think how hand, handcuffed I was in helping them through those problems. Because I knew going into the visit they weren't saved. And so I listened and I gave some generic advice, but my primary responsibility in that visit was to get them to a place where they had commonality in Christ. Oh boy, this next week when I go by and I visit with them and I listen to their struggles, now now we can fellowship because we have Christ in common. Our message, our message number four, our meaning. Our meaning, our meaning in life, our purpose in life. Look at 1 John chapter 1 verse 3 and 4. That which we have seen and declare uh, we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be filled or full rather. Letter A, notice our connection. Look back at verse number three. Uh, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you that ye also, look here, there's three fellowships here, that ye also may have fellowship with us. I call this the fellowship trilogy. Fellowship with us, that's uh, lateral fellowship. True, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, the fellowship trilogy, with the Father, with the Son, and with each other. How many of you here, when you were a little boy or little girl, had a bicycle? You had your own bicycle. Would you hold up your hand if you had your own bicycle for me? All right, then everybody here who's had a bicycle or knows how a bicycle works, you'll not only get this from a uh, theoretical standpoint, you'll get it from a practical standpoint. The worst part about having a bicycle for me, and I I lived on my bicycle as an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old boy. I was on it during the summer, 6, 7, 8 hours a day, and rode all over the place on it. Loved my bicycle. The worst part about my bicycle was when the chain came off. You know what I'm talking about? That chain pops off. Now, when you're 11, you're a lot better getting it on than you were when you were 8 and you just got in the bicycle. But I can remember uh, flipping my bicycle over, and I can remember putting the chain on the big part in the front, and then trying to get it on the back, and then I'd get it on the back, and it'd fall off on the front. You know what I'm talking about? And you go back, put it on the front, it'd fall off in the back. And, and then you felt like, whoever made this chain, this thing's too small. I can't get it all the way around. And it was frustrating. And then you, my dad would come out and show me how. And you got to spin, the, the, you get it on there halfway, and you kind of spin it, and it pops itself on. And, you know, fellowship with this way is like a bicycle chain. If, it's off, if the chain is off here, then the chain ain't going to function here either. You with me? By the way... You can have sweet fellowship with God this way, but if you're not loving your neighbor and you're not fellowshipping this way, hey, this isn't going to quite be right either. We've got to get it on the front wheel, and we've got to get it on the back wheel. And if listen, and not to go back and re-preach something from this morning, but it applies here. Listen, if there is aught between you and a brother and sister in the Lord, then that chains off and you're not walking with God either. Your walk with God's not right. In fact, we'll look at it a little bit more in the chapters to come. But he would go on to say, uh, John would go on to question the salvation of someone that had hatred in their heart for a brother and sister in the Lord. How can you hate someone and call yourself a child of God, he would say. Boy, that connection, our connection, connections matter. Can I just encourage everybody this evening, when we have a church event, don't be antisocial. Some of you just skip out on events, and you make up things to do during that time. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I, I think I need to, um, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't bought socks in about six months, and so I think I need to go sock shopping. And sorry, Pastor, I can't make it to that event because I'm busy. And you'll throw excuses at it. Well, you know, I, I, I just don't really think that going and eating steak or going and uh, uh, hearing uh, whatever. Look, that's trivial and it's silly. I'll make it to the main church services. No, 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 no. You need to be around your brothers and sisters in the Lord. You need to develop relationships with those people. By the way, fellowship is not gossip hour. Fellowship is not sitting around and having having a prayer time where we talk about how bad other people are. Right? Well, you need to pray for sister such and such. Let me tell you. woo We need to pray for a pastor because uh, I saw him the other day and, boy, he wasn't acting very pastoral. Let me tell you all about it. That's not, that's not fellowship. That's not fellowship. You know what fellowship is? When you are sharpening your brother or sister in the Lord. It's iron sharpening iron. Hey, it's me getting with Brother Mark over here after church and saying, what would you get out of your devotions this week? What encouraged you? And letting him tell me, and then I tell him. And we both walk away sharper for the Lord. That's fellowship. And we have, we have social gatherings here at the church so that we can have that koinonia, that fellowship one with another. Our connection, let her be notice our contentment. I love the way that uh, these thoughts are tied together. Look at verse 4. And these things write we unto you. Here, here is what one through three, here is the purpose of why it was written. You could really say verse four is the key verse in chapter one. Look here. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be 
full. Hey, isn't that what we all want? Does anybody here want to leave tonight and say, well, my goal in life is to be miserable. I just think I, I just think I want to be cranky and, and nasty inside and, you know, I just want to be a walking, walking septic tank of just septic, just spewing out of my mouth and out of my body language and I want everyone to know how miserable I am. I, I don't think anybody wants that. We want to be filled with joy. I know I do. I, I want to be filled with joy. And Jesus says here, if you want joy, then you must first learn to walk with the Father and the Son and then learn how to have fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. That commonality in Christ. Fullness of joy does not come from anything other than fellowship. Let me say that again. Fullness of joy does not come from anything other than fellowship. How's your fellowship, Christian? I'm 36. I've never preached a sermon on fellowship, and I've never heard anyone preach a sermon on fellowship. A whole sermon on fellowship. We're going to preach two of them. Next week we'll be back on this topic looking at the conditions around fellowship. But how's your fellowship tonight, Christian? How's your fellowship with the Father? Are you walking with Him? Are you letting Him make you stronger? Is the written Word sharpening you? Is the living Word sharpening you through prayer? How is your fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord? You know what I find is that when I leave a social gathering with brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I know there isn't any ought in my heart toward any of them, and I know that I've walked with the Lord and walked with them with the Lord, boy, I walk away and my cup is full and overflowing. Fullness of joy comes from fellowship through Jesus. Our contentment in Christ comes through our connections through Christ. Are you content this evening? Contentment does not come from things. Contentment does not come from materialism. Contentment does not come from anything other than walking with the Lord and having a right relationship with each other. One of the hardest parts about being a pastor is um, no matter how hard you try, sometimes you just make people your enemies. Sometimes people just make up their mind they don't like you. In the three and a half years I've been pastor, I have said and done some things that have given people a reason not to like me. It's never been intentional, but it's happened. It's funny, I was an assistant pastor for seven, eight years before I became a senior pastor. I shared this with Pastor Morales one-on-one. In the seven or eight years I was an assistant pastor, I did not make one enemy. Not one person had a problem with me. Not one. Everyone loved me. Everyone loved my wife. There was no animosity or headbutting or problems. But when I became a senior pastor and my role changed and I became more of an authoritarian within the church, not that that's my only role, but sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes, sometimes you create problems with people. It is my goal. It is my, it is my desire. I hope everyone's listening this evening both here and online, those that are watching online. It is my desire to have fellowship with everyone in this room. Everyone who goes to this church. Boy, I don't want problems with anybody. I don't want hardships. I don't want frustrations. I don't want animosity that's sitting in the background between us. If I have done something that's offended you, or you have done something that's offended me, or we just have two different perspectives on an item, well, you know what I want? I want us to come to the table, and as we looked at this morning, if we have a quarrel against each other, then let's go back to the cross, and let's let the love of Christ toward us help us fix our issues. Hey, that's not just me to you. That's all of you toward each other. We can work this out, but we have to have fellowship. We have to have fellowship. Who created fellowship? God did. He gave it to us as a gift. He wants us to walk with him the way Adam and Eve did. And he wants us to fellowship with each other. Lord, we pray tonight you'd help us to take the teaching, the preaching of 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Help us to take it and apply it. Lord, where we fall short, 
where we're antisocial or we're rough and gruff and we ruffle feathers and we hurt and offend and where we are out of line. Help us, Lord, not to be so proudful that we don't get those things settled and fixed. Lord, where we, the chain comes off the bicycle because we're lacking in our, our, our Bible reading and prayer. Lord, we're not sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Help us, Lord, to get back to a place where you are deeply touching us through both the written word and, Lord Jesus, through you, the, the, the living word. Help us, God, tonight to consider these areas. And, Lord, help us to be people who have fellowship one with another, through with each other, and then with God and the Son. In Jesus' name.